0: Welcome to Slimehouse, a podcast rated PG for crude humor, outrageous hijinks, and mild language. My name is Jared. I'm Jasper.
1: I'm Max. And
0: I'm Nelson. So our episode today is on one of the most esteemed movies that we've covered so far on this podcast. The biggest film of 1990 home alone this is my house i have to defend it where's your mother my mom's in the car where's your father he's at work what about your brothers and sisters i'm an only child where do you live
2: can't tell you that why not because you're a stranger he's a kid i mean what can a
0: kid
3: do to us kids are stupid i know i was you still are Mark. this is it
0: the plot of this movie involves a 10 year old boy whose parents forget him in the flurry of a holiday trip to France and is left all by himself for the holidays with some unexpected company from a couple of bumbling bandits. The movie was directed by Christopher Columbus, who also is known for doing the first couple of Harry Potter movies, Mrs. Doubtfire, and it was written and produced by John Hughes. It famously stars Macaulay Culkin as the legendary Kevin McAllister, and the couple of bumbling bandits are played by Daniel Stern and the legendary Joe Pesci, who won an Oscar this same year for his performance in Goodfellas. The film also stars Catherine O'Hara as Kevin McAllister's mom and John Hurd as Kevin McAllister's dad. A couple of true Slimehouse parents. Catherine O'Hara, I feel like, is a
2: legend in the uh, Slimehouse PTA, if there was one. And the reason we're covering this real landmark Slimehouse movie this week is because it celebrates its 30th anniversary on November sixteenth. Pretty crazy because as a kid, you know, this was one of the movies that everyone watched and everyone loved. Actually, when I was growing up, I I watched the second one more often. I don't know why. Maybe it was just on TV more often. Um, But I saw Lost in New York more. And then I saw the first Home Alone for the first time. We were on summer vacation with Um, some good family friends of ours, and the four of us kids watched this movie probably two or three times within a week just because
0: we loved The Traps. Did you guys love this movie as a kid or like it or hate it? Oh, yeah, it was a Christmas staple in my family for sure.
3: Yeah, for me, I'm kind of in the same boat as you, Jasper. I saw the second one way more than I saw this one. Rewatching it for this episode was probably only the third or fourth time I've seen Home Alone in my life. And I've seen Home Alone 2 ten plus, maybe a dozen wow. times. Wow. <laughs> as a kid, I was very into New York City. I'd never actually been there, but just the idea of New York through movies I was really into. Which, I actually don't even like New York very much as a city, but <laughs> as a kid, <laughs> I, as a kid, I was so obsessed with this sort of cinematic version. And Home Alone 2 really marketed the whole New York shtick. I mean, it's called Lost in New York. And so I watched that one all the time. I think I had a DVD of that one, never had a DVD of the first. So all my memories of Home Alone are very much associated with the second one, not this one.
0: I missed seeing these two movies in theaters when they came out. I do remember really being excited for Home Alone 3 coming out. And that's a perfect segue for me because I'm
1: I'm digging back down memory lane. And ironically, I saw Home Alone 3 first, (laughs) which is maybe sacrilege. But I saw it at a sleepover. The parents probably were like, oh, everyone's already seen Home Alone 1 and 2. But I was on the younger end. And then later, Home Alone, I definitely watched it at friends' houses. Definitely watched it with family I feel like Home Alone, just it's a definitive Christmas movie. It's also an all-ages movie. I I watched it a lot, and it's sort of a really good movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, Max, I think one thing that you said, that you saw this
2: three or four times, and you saw Home Alone 2 like ten times, (laughs) I think that that just speaks to how familiar a lot of people are with this movie and how ubiquitous it is, especially for kids who grew up in the 90s. The amount of movies you can say you've seen five to ten times are few and far between, but I feel like most millennials can probably include that in their most watched
3: list. Three or four is a lot of times to have seen a movie most of the time, but for Home Alone, it seems like few, very few (laughs) times, just because I feel like so many people watch it every year for Christmas. So only having seen it four times, which is a lot, feels like I've barely seen it at all.
0: I think Slimehouse, as we're defining it on this series, probably wouldn't look the way it does without Home Alone, the original. It's definitely a landmark. And
2: I think the year of 1990, just in general, is a like real landmark transitional year. Before Home Alone, you had movies like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Problem Child. I believe Kindergarten Cop might have come out ar- around the same time as Home Alone. But these are movies that would define, you know, kind of the Slimehouse aesthetic as. As you said, Jared, this feels like the first true movie of the genre.
1: There's something really interesting that I discovered upon getting ready for this episode. A lot of the trivia for this movie says, because of the budget, John Candy was only on for one day. And because of the budget, they didn't have as many of this and that. And as we know, this is the highest grossing film of 1990. This is a smash hit that would have a long shelf life and spawn a franchise, essentially. And it was a budget picture. It was not a blockbuster in the traditional sense, but we're in this time period where a movie like Home Alone could easily be the number one movie of the year, and that speaks to the kind of scrappiness of Slimehouse, that these are kid-centric movies, not very expensive, not built around special effects or whatever. I get the feeling this movie came out It roared at the box office for weeks and months long after Christmas was over. And I think every exec in town probably said, get me the next Home Alone hundred
2: percent. I hadn't watched this in in probably five to ten years, but it was a favorite growing up, as I'm sure it was for a few of us. But watching it, I was so giddy, like writing down. Oh, here's this. Oh, here's this trope. Here's this thing that I didn't think I would see in it because it is a little earlier. It's like right on the cusp of the 90s, but it's all there. The blueprint for so many movies that we will talk about and have talked about is all right in this movie. And it, it it's it's pretty amazing. And it still holds up, too. It's still funny. We're watching it just in time for the Christmas season. And that, I think, has also helped its longevity, is that it is a holiday movie. But it's not necessarily a holiday movie about Christmas, so to speak. It, it's just a fun movie that happens to be set around Christmas.
0: Like Die Hard. See, I was thinking of Die Hard when watching this, because like, they're both like franchises that started around the same time from 20th Century Fox, and the first couple movies are set in Christmas. I think of the, those two series, Home Alone and Die Hard, as almost like a yin and yang, where like one is sort of a young boy's fantasy, and then Die is sort of like an old man's fantasy, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, because they are very funny.
3: much both just like power fantasies based around <laughs> getting like revenge on some kind of invader. I never thought of that, but that's true. Kind of similar plots for... <laughs> They even both have a part where someone's walking barefoot on broken glass. And yeah, that <laughs> part especially. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: like, <laughs> I think what makes this such kind of a watershed movie is that it sets the tone for these kids taking control of the house or these kids taking control of a very adult situation. And as you said, Nelson, succeeding and not only succeeding, but having a good time doing it. It's kind of when they, you know, discovered the secret sauce to make the slime taste really good. But it, it, what I find really interesting about this movie, and, and let me know if you guys agree, I think this structure of this movie is very, very interesting because it starts out as kind of standard kind of 80s family comedy, something like the Vacation movies, also written by John Hughes. But then by the end of it, it just is a full on slime house extravaganza. And to me, the structure kind of mirrors this transition out of that more verbal comedy into what we would see in the 90s into the thousands. Is this just like zany slapstick comedy that would dominate theaters for, for years to come?
3: Yeah, i had actually forgotten how late in this movie that traps actually came into play. Like it's only the very like end of the movie in which the scene where all the stuff you remember happens, all the traps with the bandits actually happens. And I think it's interesting talking about how it comes at the end of the movie when all that kind of happens. What a change there is. I was watching Siskel and Ebert's review on this, which I tend to do with a lot of these movies because I feel like it's a good way to kind of see how they were received by like a mainstream audience in their time. And they were talking about how they really liked the movie until the bandits showed up, then they were like it all was like too over the top and like the scene with the traps at the end. They said they wanted to just see what he would get into while he was home alone. So I think it's interesting at the time they seemed to kind of feel like that came out of nowhere. When now I feel like with the family you would expect those sort of hijinks to happen.
0: It's set up at the very beginning of the movie with Joe Pesci showing up as like a fake cop trying to scout the place for robbing it at the end. So I mean it's it makes sense in the context of the story. But I do think that's an interesting point, Jasper brought up, where like a lot of the earlier scenes of the movie of Culkin being home alone, kind of like witticisms and his. I don't think so. His delivery just being very wry and then. By end of it, the home invasion stuff is if there's one scene that you could point to in any movie of Slam House being born, I think it is that scene, just the physical comedy and that cartooniness. And our first episode was on Flubber and that is a John Hughes movie. We talked a lot about how that really melded a live action movie that had a very cartoony vibe to it. And the scenes of Pesci and Stern invading the house and getting their asses kicked—it has this very like Looney Tunes, Tom and Jerry kind of vibe to it. To me, it's that blend of the real and the animated, so to speak. I, I love that, Jared. I think that's the most eloquent somebody's kind of put it on the
2: show. The gist of Slimehouse movies are like, imagine if a cartoon could happen in real life, and that's just what the last act of this movie embodies, and
0: you know, influenced for for decades. One thing I mentioned in some of these episodes of these movies that we've talked about is that the henchmen or the villain characters are played by these esteemed sort of actors that are genuinely menacing actors, but they kind of tone it down for this environment, this more family-friendly movie, but they can't get away with dropping F-bombs. So Joe Pesci, instead of saying whatever he wants, like he does in Goodfellas, he just grumbles a lot when he's slipping and falling. And I think that's really unique to Slimehouse, actually. Like these actors that you normally take them seriously, but... They're transposed in this world where the joke's on them. The live-action
1: cartooniness is really sold by those two actors, Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern. But the second part of it that really cements this as perhaps the dawn of true Slimehouse is kids rule. That's the thing about Slimehouse. They get to be in charge. They get to call the shots. They get to teach people lessons and leave it to Macaulay Culkin, who in his day was the biggest kid star of all time. He kind of carried on his back all these movies where he was cute, but he was also witty, but this being the one that really cemented—when when you think of Macaulay Culkin, you think of Home Alone more than any of his other titles, because I think he really got to shine in a movie where he's alone for most of it, and so he gets to
2: rule. Kind of in that child psyche that, that this movie runs with is that also literal wish fulfillment, like, oh, that would be cool if this happened. I see them doing this in the movie. I could do that, too. This movie, he literally wishes that his family would disappear, and then they disappear. I mean, they just go to Paris without him, but... To him, it's like, whoa, I'm the king of the castle, I can do whatever I want, I can eat ice cream and watch gangster movies without my mom yelling at me.
3: Something interesting about looking at the movies before Home Alone, the family movies before Home Alone and post Home Alone, is pre-Home Alone in the 80s, most of the family movies were much more fantastical, like obviously this is an unrealistic movie, but it is Based in the real world, he has like real issues and stuff like that. And then before that, it was stuff like Never Ending Story and Labyrinth, or something like The Goonies, where there were pirates. But this is set in a common home with a normal everyman kid, not like a chosen one of some kind. I think that might be why kids latched onto this so hard is it was a kid that was like them in a world like theirs doing insane things.
1: I can attribute that to John Hughes. I feel like John Hughes's legacy, regardless of what we think of it, is that he looked at kids and teens and said, "Tell your stories," and he told them as if they would. And they didn't have to be on a quest to save the day in a fantasy land. They just had to be at home, usually in their Chicago suburbs.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it. Looking at you know, like the movies we've looked at before too: Weird Science, The Monster Squad that do take place in, you know, small-town America, in the suburbs. But as you said, Max, the plot revolves around something that really could not happen. In Weird Science, they create a woman from a computer. Can't happen. Monster Squad, they awaken the classic universal monsters, and they have to save the world from them. Can't really happen, unfortunately. But Home Alone, this is like something that can easily happen. You know, a robber could come to your house, and you could take all the stuff in your house, and you could make a trap. Is it probable? Probably not.
0: But that's what made this movie so long lasting is that everybody can relate to it. And while we're talking about Kevin wishes his family would disappear, I think we see a lot of tropes we talked about in previous episodes about the family in particular, I think the trope of the annoying sibling. I think Buzz is probably the most iconic example there is of the annoying sibling.
3: For sure. And then you also, I feel like, have the ultimate Slimehouse parents who are just very stressed out and overwhelmed with everything throughout the movie.
1: Yeah, I remember seeing this as a kid and my stepmom saying, this family is always running. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> they are, you know. And, and the most, the sort of centerpiece of that is Catherine O'Hara, And I love her wardrobe in this movie. The blazer was something my mom owned. It was kind of the working mom look of the 90s was the shoulder padded blazer. And she wears it in basically every scene. And I got nostalgic for that because it reminded me of my mom when I was a kid. We've talked about how
2: parents are kind of aloof in a lot of these Slimehouse movies. They're a little clueless and oblivious to a lot of stuff. And I think that this just cements that as like a key addition to the Slimehouse narrative is these aloof parents who are great parents in their own right. They're just a little airheaded occasionally. These movies are successful because you can laugh at the grownups, feel smarter than them.
3: How could we do this? We forgot him.
0: We didn't forget him. We just miscounted.
3: What kind of mother am I? If it makes you feel any better, I forgot my reading classes. Yeah, I feel like when they were making this movie, they were very worried about the premise not coming off as realistic because they go to such lengths to justify like how they could possibly leave Kevin. There's so many little things that go wrong along the way, which some of them are actually very subtle. Like I didn't realize when they threw everything away until like a later watch that they threw away his ticket or his passport and then later like the kids the nosy neighbors in the van so he messes up the head count and all this stuff so it's just yeah they go to such lengths so you understand how they could have possibly left him at home when I feel like in the end it like doesn't really matter that much.
1: It does, no it's very
3: bulletproof. Yeah I even think I even read somewhere that it's weird that they're having milk with pizza in the first place like that's a very gross combination (laughs) but they even have her mention like we gotta drink this milk before it goes bad because they need them opaque substance, so they would realistically not realize the tickets were there.
2: I would drink milk with pizza growing up, so... Oh, I
3: know, yeah, I never was a milk kid, so I guess (laughs) (laughs) I missed out on the pizza and milk.
0: 2% only. I actually grew up lactose intolerant, so this movie in particular made me very jealous, just because of how much dairy is in this thing. Like, the cheese pizza, the, the mac and cheese he's eating right before the the bandits show up at the end. And he has that with a glass of milk, too. So There's so many glasses of milk. There's so much cheese pizza. There's so much mac and cheese. There's so much candy. There's so much ice cream. There's just so much. And it was a lot to handle.
1: Well, of course we know pizza is the official food of Slimehouse. But let me also talk about another character. Is the pizza delivery guy. And yes. I think we're going to see this more. That they're just kind of an enigma. They're always... Older than the kids right because they're like late teens to early 20s, which means they're kind of Bumbling in and of themselves. They're usually supporting roles and another place where I see this where it has a funny moment is The princess diaries has a really goofy pizza man who has a goatee beard that looks (laughs) like a pizza and Mark my words. I think we're (laughs) gonna see more pizza delivery guys who are goofy and leave their mark but also get the delivery done. Yeah. Well cuz I
3: feel like that's an easy way to bring in like a funny like couple of scene character. Somebody orders a pizza cuz that's like an excuse for somebody to show up with no real necessary backstory or anything.
0: My favorite pizza that's ever been ordered in a movie is actually in the room. One half is archo with pesto light on the cheese, and then I think the other half is some sort of garlic pizza,
3: <laughs> but it's just, it's the most <laughs> random, like... Yeah, why'd they get so detailed on the
2: pizza? <laughs> <laughs> hey, pe- pizza toppings reveal a lot about a character, fellas. Mm-hmm.
1: <sighs> a lovely cheese
0: pizza, just for me.
2: Another character that just kind of pops up a few times is and we've talked about this a lot, are the bumbling cops. You know, all cops are bumbling in Slimehouse. <laughs> cab. <laughs> but it, that was one of those notes that, like, when I was watching this, I was like, every single movie we've watched has had just the bumbling cops who are... One, too lazy to do their job. Two, just too stupid to do their job. Or three, they just think they're smarter than
1: everyone and don't believe anybody. And Kevin learns not to trust the cops, which goes to Max's point about Slimehouse radicalizing millennials. (laughs) Another last character trope that I think is really great is
2: that we identified very early hats off to Sam Schlinker guest on the flubber episode, but the neighbor who turns out to be an ally and is kind of watching things unfold the whole movie. And in, in this one in particular, he's, he's, a neighbor who's considered to be scary, and he's old and doesn't really talk, and there's legends about him killing his family. But in the end, he's actually just a really nice guy, and ends up saving the day and bopping the bandits on the head with a snow shovel.
0: One thing I really appreciated on this rewatch is there's actually a, a parallel between Kevin's story of being isolated from his family and this character who has been estranged from his family, and they have this connection based off that where they're kind of longing to be reconnected that scene with them together in the church actually like really sang for me watching it this time especially the ending where you see that the neighbor is reunited and, you know he took kevin's advice and called his son back up i mean that actually really that made me a little misty i mean i think it might just be because of this holiday season and the pandemic and maybe not being able to see families easily
1: yeah that's one of the things that makes this movie such a hallmark because it really is broadly appealing to all ages and i agree with you jared i felt That one, especially because of COVID, I have no idea what my holidays are going to look like this season. I'm probably doing Thanksgiving alone. And so I did feel like how important it is to be with your family and, and what a great sort of gentle old man. I, I always look at him in the early scenes and I'm like, how can you not think that's a nice guy? You know, he, he looks so kind, but I think that trope is really key of the, the neighbor, the mysterious neighbor turned ally.
2: And something that we'll see, we have seen, and we'll see a lot, is a a younger child being able to teach somebody older a lesson, a a life lesson, based on kind of their juvenile experience. I think that's the beauty of seeing things through child eyes: is that you know they don't overcomplicate things.
1: Can I talk to you for a minute? Yeah, if you make it quick. Santa's got a little get together; he's late for.
0: Okay, I know you're not the real Santa Claus.
1: What makes you say that? just out of
3: curiosity
0: i'm old enough to know how it works
3: all right
2: but i also know that you work for him i'd like you to give him a message shoot i'm kevin mcallister 671 lincoln boulevard do you need the phone number that's right okay this is extremely important would you please tell him that instead of presents this year i just want my family back no toys, nothing but Peter, Kate, Buzz, Megan, Linny, and Jeff. And my aunt and my cousins. And if he has time, my Uncle Frank. Okay?
1: The last character trope that's new because we're entering a new season is Santa Claus as portrayed in <laughs> movies. And I want to be specific here. I'm not talking about Saint Nick who lives up at the North Pole. That's one type of Santa. I'm talking about your neighborhood mall Santa, who in movies is always portrayed as a joke and kind of inept because they, and Kevin literally says this out loud in the movie. He says, I know how it works. The real Santa's up at the North Pole and he has all these agents around town. And that's like a narrative that's constructed so that kids can logically understand why the hell is Santa Claus in the Denver Cherry Creek Mall, but he also lives in the North Pole. Makes no sense. And so I think we're going to see a lot more of these this season. But in this one in particular, he's got a shitty car. He smokes cigarettes. He gives the kid Tic Tacs because he's out of candy canes. And just kind of inept Santa Claus, mall Santa. We're going to see more of this.
3: Yeah, you see a lot of grumpy Santas in these movies. Dating as far back to a Christmas story, which I feel like is sort of the proto-Christmas slum. You see a lot of jokes with... I mean, even Bad Santa, which is not a Slimehouse movie, but kind of takes some of those tropes and makes them more adult, has the the Santa Claus. And I feel like that's something that kids will find funny because Santa Claus is just sort of a is it like just seeing him depicted in a way as inept or he doesn't like what he's doing is funny.
2: All right, well, moving moving into some more like specific narrative tropes and themes. What were some of your guys' favorites in this movie?
3: Um, I think the main one you got to talk about when you're talking about this movie just because it's sort of the most iconic thing about this movie and a trope that shows up in so much of these is the DIY gadgets. The whole climax is pretty much Kevin trying out all these different gadgets, which, strangely, you don't see him as, like, a real DIY inventor-type kid early in the movie, which I feel like is something you see in a lot of the movies we've watched since, is they build the kid up as an inventor, and then they do all the traps. But this, you don't really get that, but they still play a a major influence on all the slimehouse movies of this sort. Because I
1: agree with you. He's not a nerdy kid. He's not kind of a gadgety kid the way some later type of slimehouse kids are. But all the traps are a plant and a payoff. So we get to know all this foundation of the house and all the interesting things and like that there's a laundry shoot and that treehouse and the the gangster movie, all these elements that kind of are introduced early get to play later and it, it makes it seem like oh I could use whatever tools I have in my house and make hyper sophisticated gadgets that would knock out robbers. but it's because they're all really integrated into that first hour before the last 30 minutes where we get to see them in action.
2: On a similar note, kind of echoing you, Nelson, there was a lot of kind of little touches in the production design in the first like 20 minutes when you're kind of seeing the house for the first time. The mannequins in the basement, the Michael Jordan cardboard cutout in Buzz's room, just little details that you kind of notice just because you're kind of sitting in a scene. But then the way in which they actually utilize a lot of these things isn't necessarily flashy like the cardboard cut out of Michael Jordan is just on a train and moving around so it looks like there's somebody in the house a lot of these plants and payoffs which I think to you know Hughes and Columbus's credit are not like haha look what we did with that thing we introduced earlier they're very kind of subtle and I think that that's why it works so well it creates this improvisational pace to the movie that I think is so easy to ride along with but yeah those traps are great I tried making a couple as a kid didn't work
3: oh well the funniest one to me we're watching it, is after he does all these brutal traps that just like beat the shit out of them he just tosses feathers all over joe pesci i feel like that's <laughs> such a yeah, that one's just so so anticlimactic and they kind of built what. up to it yeah but it is a very funny one i think marv has like a good line afterwards called some another chicken
1: <laughs> what's everyone else's favorite traps from home
3: alone
0: for Pesci, I think it's just the him having to, his hand burning and having to put it in the snow.
3: I'd say my favorite trap's got to be another burn involving one. The one where they he sets Joe Pesci's head on fire. I just think that one's so like over the top and ridiculous. And the fact that like the top of his hat is burned, it feels like the most sort of cartoonish of all the very cartoony sort of reactions to the traps that either of the bandits have.
2: I don't know if I have a favorite, but the one trap that I also had an outside association with that I was really scared about was the tar on the stairs and when I was a kid we went to the La Brea tar pits me and my grandparents somebody who I was with said don't touch the tar you'll get sucked into the tar pit there's little kids who get sucked into the tar so I was always afraid of tar as a kid thinking if it got stuck to me it would never come off that idea of like stepping in wet hot tar with your bare feet just does not sit well with me
0: at all. <laughs> My honorable mention was when he's going up the stairs like you're talking about, and then he steps on the needle. Marv does. Oh yeah, that that killed me as a kid. I could feel that.
3: Yeah, both that and the ornaments always like made me kind of like cringe up whenever I watch him. It just the idea of stepping on anything sharp in your bare feet is very unpleasant.
1: I particularly like the moment where Marv gets to the basement. He's kind of looking around. And he sees a light switch, pulls it, and then, talk about plants and payoffs, we realize that it's not a real light. It's set up through the laundry chute, and he gets bonked with an iron.
3: Yeah, all these actors' reactions are so good, and I feel like take a, are very influential on future sort of performers we've seen in these sorts of roles in Slimehouse movies where they really are playing it. So over the top, the reactions to this pain and these hijinks—it's probably the most. When we say live-action cartoons, a lot when we talk about these, this is the performance that feels the most rooted in sort of like Tom and Jerry, Looney Tunes type logic.
2: I think that this kind of slapstick nature of these like traps is really what sets the Slime House brand of comedy into motion. The amount of people getting kicked in the balls and things like that we'll see over the next, you know, 15 years after this movie, I think and a lot of it can be attributed right back to this movie. And there's some great insults, too, uh, which I think is a really great Slimehouse trope.
3: I, I like the one where I think it's his, is it a brother or a cousin that says, Kevin, you're such a disease. Because I, I I liked how much venom he delivers that line with. It may not be the most creative insult in the movie, but I I I just like the scene where he's sitting there thinking about like how his family left him, and you just see these like faces of all his family members pop up around him and say whatever the the meanest thing they had said to him that day. <laughs> Mine is uh,
0: I didn't I don't remember seeing this in previous watches of this, but the one of the sisters. Uh, I think is practicing on her French because they're going to Paris for the vacation. And she tells Kevin, you're what they would call in France, les incompetents
3: incompetent.
2: My favorite's actually in the second one, and I just think it's so hilarious. I'll move ahead to the sequel. There's a scene where Buzz does his shtick of like, oh, I'm so sorry, Kevin. But he like leans over and says, you're still a trout sniffer. (laughs) (laughs) Because it doesn't mean anything. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Unlike previous movies where they've been specific, like Band-Aid Breath and Monster Squad, these ones are not. They're just kind of going for jugulars at whatever. So, And the other one I wrote down, just Just to round it out, he calls him puke breath.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of barf conversations in this movie, I noticed. Not necessarily, like, farting or bathroom humor, but there's a lot of barf humor in this.
3: Yeah, like, nobody actually throws up, but the barfing is referenced quite (laughs) regularly.
2: (laughs) I mean, one of my favorite lines is when they're eating pizza and buzz says oh i guess somebody ate your cheese pizza somebody's gonna have to barf it all up
3: <laughs> yeah and then he does a whole like barf routine which is that i think is very funny <laughs> did anyone order me
1: plain cheese well yeah we did Buffy if you want any somebody's gonna have to barf it all up because it's gone now i only want you to listen to this quick break if you're someone who surfs the net Jokes aside, in today's landscape, having a great website is essential, and Valencia Creative Company is bar none the best website creator you'll ever find. Its founder, Brian, builds beautiful custom websites tailor-made to what you're after. Go to valenciacreative.com to schedule a consultation. And if you want proof, check out our website, slimehousepod.com, designed by Valencia Creative Co., a web design company that's with you for the road ahead.
0: And probably has happened before is the exotic pet, and in this movie, it's Buzz's tarantula. That tarantula has a huge payoff in the climax of the movie, but a lot of these kids' movies have times where it's like a snake or some sort of other like non-dog, non-cat sort of like companion that's just more quirky and interesting.
1: Definitely pets, and specifically odd pets, are a big part of Slimehouse pencil in cheaper by the dozen among many others dorothy caught in in goosebumps the grocery bags that just drop open and lose all your groceries which happens to kevin on his way back from the grocery store which also happened in goosebumps and it's so kind of random that that's something that would happen it I mean, does it's happen to me before <laughs> it's happened to me in in small ways so <laughs> I guess it works and on the
2: note of groceries i think We already talked about it, but like junk food has
1: a huge place in
2: this movie. I think more than a lot of the earlier movies we've seen, but like the pizza, the macaroni microwave dinner, there's a lot of Pepsi in this movie. I'm pretty sure there was some product deal there. Well,
1: it's like the first thing he does when he is home alone is get to eat junk food, like popcorn and ice cream. And that's the wishful plan, right? You know, when you're a kid, you're limited your junk food intake. For probably good reason.
3: <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's like the bulk of his sort of at home alone. What am I gonna do? Is he just eats junk food and makes a huge mess around the house? So I feel like that it's really what they tapped into is what a kid would do if he were alone is just eat everything in the house. There's one brand of chips I noticed that he was eating that doesn't exist anymore called Crunch Taters, and I looked them up because <laughs> a very slime house packaging Crunch Taters. It's like an alligator eating the chip but something it's uh, apparently the main marketing is it was the crunchiest chip ever on the market it was extra crunchy and i don't know if that means like an early <laughs> marketing for kettle chips or if they were just really hard <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's that's very good
0: there's also the running gag i love about um the sibling played by macaulay colkin's real life um sibling kieran colkin and uh, he plays fuller and he has a bedwetting problem, and so they threaten Kevin with having to have him sleep with Fuller.
3: Yeah, I think it's very funny, the sort of, like, evil gaze he gives Kevin while he's, like, chugging.
1: One thing that I... Another element that we haven't talked about yet that is very influential on later movies, especially family movies, is the music of this movie, and I'm not talking about John Williams' score, which is notable, but not, not landmark or definitive, but specifically the soundtrack which has a lot of pop music and specifically pop Christmas music, like rocking around the Christmas tree and you name it. And that to me feels groundbreaking. It feels like I haven't seen that happen in a movie before. And yet every movie since that wanted to capture that pop Christmas feeling.
2: She- yeah. I really like that note, Nelson. Um, I think we've talked about this quite a bit, but the idea of like these boomer, kind of needle drops these songs that were very rooted in the 60s even earlier like the 50s that really soundtrack a lot of these slime house movies we saw it in house arrest which is another 90s film and i think what 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 really also sets these apart and i think this is kind of a john hughes thing you saw it in pretty in pink ferris bueller's day off are these montages of people singing these songs lip syncing to themselves or just dancing around having a party in the house to these songs, which, you know, Hughes is famous for his use of music in his movies. And while he didn't, you know, direct this film, he wrote it. And I think that that speaks a lot to kind of what you're saying, Nelson, is is these repurposing of these classic pop songs. In this case, a lot of pop Christmas tracks. It's funny, I actually watched another Macaulay Culkin movie right after this, Getting Even with Dad, which came out in 94. And there's another scene of him doing a lip sync to do you love me?
3: Yeah, a lot of the sort of proto Slum movies we've watched prior to Home Alone either use soundtracks of like what was cool at the time, sort of very contemporary soundtracks, or in something like Monster Squad, a bunch of original songs that were sort of trying to sound like music at the time. But this is one of the first ones we've seen, which we've talked about it before, the sort of use of oldies, like 50s, 60s songs that maybe the parents will recognize and are also very rooted in Americana. Yeah, I love that. that So they sort of draw from this Americana to sort of bring that to the movie instead of trying to make what would be hip or cool to the kids. And it
1: makes these movie moments, truly, because you associate— I associate rocking around the Christmas tree with seeing Michael Jordan on the train and that moment. And another Chris Columbus flick, Mrs. Doubtfire— the song Dude Looks Like a Lady forever is associated with the montage of Mrs. Doubtfire running around San Francisco, and it's, it's great. It's movie magic, but it's really made possible by Bangin' Soundtrack. Rocking around the Christmas tree at the Christmas party hop Mistletoe home where you can see every couple tries to stop
0: And talking about these Music and movie moments is a good segue into you know movie within movie moments, and we talked about in Hocus Pocus a while back how there was like a slime house commercial within the film Hocus Pocus. Here, one of the most iconic gags is the use of this movie Filthy Angels with Souls, which isn't a real movie, but it looks like this 30s, or 40s kind of classic gangster movie. It's the you know it's that one movie Kevin wasn't allowed to watch, but now he's home alone and he can, and he basically uses audio from that movie to intimidate the little nero's delivery guy Or one thing that i think is
2: really funny about these kind of movies within the movie is that the most iconic line or at least in kind of my view from this movie from home alone from the home alone franchise as a whole is the you filthy animal quotes you have the merry christmas you filthy animal or keep the change you filthy animal it's not anything that any character in the actual home alone universe says but you see that on like christmas sweaters and decorations in target every year this this like throwaway line you know kind of became this the most kind of iconic thing to come out of home alone in recent years
1: there's another trope associated with it which is kevin covering his eyes but yet kind of peeking through which is just kind of kids being kids and kind of just on the edge of seeing something inappropriate for kids but that curiosity that We all had as youngsters.
3: Yeah, there's also a sort of scene like that, a different kind of inappropriate than the violence in the movie. He looks at like some dirty magazines that Buzz has at one point and says uh, he has a very funny line in that scene he says like no clothes at all sickening which I always <laughs> <laughs> which I, I guess I laughed the hardest at that anything and it's just the line the, the line's sickening I found very... <laughs> that's very
2: funny and I feel like we'll see that a little bit more too because we saw that in Haunted Mansion he sneaks his dad's Playboy magazine in Monster Squad 2 there's a Playboy magazine drop In their treehouse those curious kids and their dirty literature I think we can call that a trope now all right let's do like a quick closing round of trope time but let's do like hyper specific notes you guys might have I'll start it off this time I feel like there's a lot of balding jokes in slime house where like guys don't have any hair or they get their hair burned off and it's funny and this happens when, we've already talked about this, Joe Pesci gets his head torched. But there's a joke about that, that Daniel Stern's character makes to Joe Pesci's about how he doesn't have any hair. And I feel like we see this all the time. Like toupees flying off, talking about a receding hairline or something. And I, I, it kind of goes back to that like emasculation here that we talk about a lot. But I also think it's just kind of a way to like make fun of the old guy because he doesn't have any hair. I think balding joke is a humor point we need to keep track of.
0: Jared, what about you? When the family arrives in France and they realize that Kevin is gone, they basically hijack a payphone from a a French woman. We kind of attributed this to the trope of dumb Americans in foreign countries and just kind of the reputation of Americans being dumb.
1: I'll go with a truck related trope, which is the moment where Kevin is walking home from the grocery store and the truck with the wet bandits kind of sneaks up behind him. And just that visual of a person on foot and there's a car sneaking behind him. I think we're gonna see that again. And then specifically, we'll definitely see this again where the person gets away by hiding kind of in plain sight, if you will. In this case, Kevin hides in the nativity scene at the church. That I think we'll see again where it's not even just a slimehouse trope, but just a movie trope in general where people hide in kind of funny ways.
3: Yeah, I would say mine, it kind of relates to when we were talking about the gangster movie is at one point Kevin watches I don't think you actually see much of it, but you hear it, the Grinch television special with uh, the animated Grinch which sort of echoes the events of what happens with the bandits robbing his house and that's something that's very specific I feel like we've noticed in a number of these movies is at some point someone's watching or there's a TV playing, usually an older movie that sort of mirrors or alludes to something happening on screen we saw it with Weird Science with Frankenstein and we saw it quite a lot in Flubber with Weebo's reaction so just using old movies to sort of allude to the events of the in the current time of the movie
2: and those are all John Hughes movies you know Weird Science Home Alone and Flubber and I think going back to the music point we made too I think Hughes is just... He uses his pop cultural references a lot. He has a lot in his arsenal. And we talked about this a lot, how the Slimehouse genre is filled with cultural references within each of these movies. And, you know, maybe that's something we can attribute to John Hughes or even you can go a little earlier in the movies like Airplane and, and things like that that use pop cultural references as their main sense of humor, you know. Another John Hughes... device that i think we'll see a lot in some of the other movies we watch of his that will then also trickle into you know just the general Slimehouse world is kids breaking the fourth wall and kind of talking directly to camera whether it's for just a couple lines as a joke or you know telling the narrative through their eyes we saw this in house arrest we saw it in a few other films we've watched but i think that that's something we'll see a lot i'm curious uh I feel like this would be a really fun video game. Max, Jared, are there any video game tie-ins?
3: It looks like there were actually several video game tie-ins. There was one for the NES and the Super NES, which was actually put out by Bethesda, who became very well known (laughs) later on for um, the Fallout games. Elder Scrolls, yeah. It's mostly, I have not played it, but I watched some gameplay footage. Mostly consists of, you just sort of have five minutes to set traps, and then the bandits come, and you see if your traps work, which, like, actually sounds pretty fun to me. And then there was also, weirdly, and perhaps more notably, a 2006 PlayStation 2 European-exclusive Home Alone game that... Uh, Anybody listening, you have to look up some images from this game because it might be the ugliest game (laughs) I've ever seen and apparently consists only of locking doors. There aren't really traps or anything in this. You just have to lock the doors to stop the bandits from getting in the house. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's very funny. Mm -hmm. One thing I want to ask about is the the Elvis is Alive conspiracy connection. Shall we discuss this?
3: Oh yeah, that's I think that's that's mine though. Uh, <laughs> this is something I just rediscovered. There's a scene in which Catherine O'Hara is talking to the airport employees, and John Candy's kind of behind her. You're about to meet John Candy's character, and there's just this guy, kind of a Kenny Rogers-looking guy with like a blazer and a red shirt, and people that believe that Elvis is still alive think that that's Elvis for some reason, making a cameo in Home Alone just for the fans. (laughs) And I was watching, like, real in-depth conspiracy videos about this, and they were, like, showing him moving his head in some way at a concert and saying how that mirrors the way this guy moved his head, this extra in Home Alone. (laughs) So, yeah, there's, like, very in-depth people that think that Elvis appears in Home Alone.
2: I mean, it would go along with a celebrity cameo that we see a lot in Slimehouse movies, so.
1: There's also a fan theory that Kevin Miscalester grows up to become another Hollywood icon, Jigsaw, for all his innovative (laughs) traps. (laughs) Oh, man. All right, well, do we want to move into some slimiest moments? Nelson, you want to kick it off? Sure. This is one that I was especially keen to because I'm a big fan of Home Alone 3, which will eventually make for a great episode. But the trope is some character has an animal on them, not a cute animal, but a creepy animal like a rodent or a tarantula. And another character, one of their cohorts says, like, stay still and holds like a baseball bat or in this case, a crowbar, and then whacks them. But the animal is smart enough to get out of the way. And instead they just hit... The person in this case, it's Joe Pesci, and so just so, whacking someone with an animal on them unsuccessfully and hurting that person to me felt like Slime House in a nutshell.
0: One thing that I don't think we talked about yet, and I'll uh, cash this in as my slimiest moment, is Joe Pesci's golden tooth, and just like the way that gets knocked out in the climax, and then the dad discovering it at the very end. The interactions of the, of the two henchmen in this movie, uh, Stern and Pashi, I just think they're just, they have this very slimy uh, chemistry.
3: For sure. I'd say my slimiest moment in this relates kind of back to Nelson's. It also involves the tarantula, is just the initial scene where the tarantula lands on Daniel Stern. And he sort of looks at it for a second and pauses and then just lets out a insane scream, like a very <laughs> like a, a, very, a very over-the-top scream, which is also very high pitched, which I feel like sort of plays into the emasculation humor that we see in a lot of these. But I just think that thing happens, pause for a beat and then a big, long funny scream is a very slimehouse thing. I think we actually talked about that some Nelson did with Haunted Mansion as well and I think that's just a very slimy moment in this film.
2: There's quite a few this isn't my slimiest moment, but there's quite a few uh, of the reaction to an impending iron or thing to the face where the character will just go,
0: Uh oh. <laughs> there's a there's a few of those
2: in here. <laughs> but my slimiest moment is actually I don't know if it's something we'll see a lot, but it just it it, it like when it when it happens in this movie, it's just like the slime mometer breaks through the glass for me when he Realizes that the the wet bandits are going to try and rob his house. He pulls out a map of the house and rolls it out on the table, and it's all done in like crayons and like bad child's handwriting, <laughs> and it has all the traps mapped out all over the house. And I think it's a pretty specific thing to Home Alone. You'll see it in Home Alone two and three, I think, as well. It's a recurring gag in the franchise. But Man, it just like the, the way it looks with just like the silly kid's handwriting, colorful crayons, kid about to do business. It, it, it just was so, so slimy to me.
0: And with that, I think it's time to get into some slime scores. So Jasper, do you want to go first? I'm actually
2: going to go very high with this one. Seeing as this is really a watershed moment in Slimehouse history, really the first true Slimehouse movie. There's so many just fundamental things that will not be developed out of this movie, but will be just ripped and copy pasted from this movie. And for that reason, I'm giving this a 9. I could go full 10, but I think that it, the first act and the second act of this movie are not kind of full slime. They have a foot in that kind of 80s family comedy. There's also some like really sentimental stuff in this movie as well with the next door neighbor's the last 20 minutes of this movie are 10 out of 10 slime. And for that, you know, it, it's it's an iconic piece of work.
1: And I'm going to give it a 9 for that. So I will counter you because early into the movie, there's a scene where Kevin charges at Buzz, spills milk, which causes a whole bunch of spillage, and it just hijinks ensue is what I wrote down, of course, because it's just total mess. And right then I knew. I knew that this was a rare 10 out of 10 slimehouse movie and I'll stand by that because I think of this movie like Helen of Troy it's the face that launched a thousand ships and a thousand imitators that came after it because so many movies tried to replicate what this was it was it was just a simple premise done really really well with a great performance that everyone wanted to replicate and so I think it's so important for slimehouse that yes it's a little more sentimental and I would argue a little bit more polished and well-made than some of the other slime house, but I think it has so much of that including of course the iconic climax. So I'm going to stand by a flat 10.
3: Yeah, for me, I'd say taking this movie in a vacuum It might be an 8 or 9, but I have to agree with Nelson. I feel like this movie is so important in the key development of all the slimehouse tropes, and you see them all fully developed here, sort of, for the first time. All these ones we've talked about, here's a little thing that grew to be a slimehouse trope, here's a little thing that did this. This, they're all sort of fully in place for the first time. And, I mean, if you looked at the full slimehouse list, you could probably make a whole sub-list of 20-plus movies that are just kind of Home Alone (laughs) ripoffs. So I feel like just the fact that so many Slimehouse movies were trying to be Home Alone or replicate what Home Alone did first, I have to give it a 10.
0: And for me, I'm going to go with... I'm going to side with Jasper on this one. It's a 9 for me. Um, I think what Nelson said something that kind of about it being more polished, and I think things about this movie like John Williams' score... To me, it's it's very not Slimehouse, and there's just elements of it that just don't quite fit the bill of what I think of. The other thing is that we'll get into the sequels, perhaps, later on in the series, but I do think this series escalated the slime factor. I think Home Alone 2 is a little more cartoonier and has gags, I think, are slimier, and then Home Alone 3 even more so. So I do think that this franchise had room to grow in its sliminess, but... You guys are right on the money with how this is just the most influential movie that can be considered Slimehouse Canon. So I'm gonna lean I'm gonna go with a nine.
1: Yeah, I get I get those counterpoints. I think that they're it just kind of more in Max's camp. It leans so much in what it defined and what it created that I, I think not all Slimehouse movies are gonna be exactly the same. And yes, it's more sentimental than say furry vengeance. But it has enough of the other stuff. I'm willing to give it maybe a lower ten than I would give another. i've got I've got plenty more tens on the list. I think. I don't think there's only one ten out of ten slimehouse movie, but I, I stand by my
2: it's my. it's an important text. If you were to choose five essential slimehouse movies, I would probably choose this.
1: This is arguably the most important slimehouse movie all right. Well, I'm glad to have some high slime scores from everyone and fun stuff as always. And we'll continue our now coined Yuletide slime next week with more
0: festivities. Take it easy, y'all. Stay slimy. Slime House, a podcast created by Jared Anderson, Jasper Birnbaum, Max Morris, and H. Nelson Tracy. Visit us on the web at slimehousepod.com. Our website is created by Brian Hume of Valencia Creative Co., theme music composed by Greta Russell. If you like what you hear, support this podcast at anchor.fm slash slimehousepod or by following us on social media at SlimehousePod.